Michigan Murders Podcast. I'm Laura. And I'm Stephanie. I, I was just hired. <laughs> I was like, I did it. I got to the intro part. What is It's 8 o'clock in the morning. I, <laughs> I haven't even made it through a full cup of coffee yet. I am not. I'm not alive. <laughs> oh my gosh. I was going to tell you. Um, Nathan had me try. He's like, oh, I got these shoot- shooter things that I brought for golf. And this one tastes like banana. And this one's apple. And they're pretty good. And you should try one. And I was thinking, okay. So I, I crack open the banana one. I was like, oh, it smells like, like a banana Laffy Taffy. That's weird. I should have known. I tried it. I thought it was going to die. <laughs> I was like, this is awful. Why would you think this is good? <laughs> it's some like a little 99 proof banana flavored liqueur. And I was like, this is the worst thing I've ever put in my mouth. What was it called? 99 bananas? I think something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I thought I was going to die. I was like, why is the aftertaste minty? <laughs> what is wrong? <laughs> and I'm a person that likes whiskey and tequila and that that bananas thing was too much yeah it can be i was like this is this is awful you can't just shoot like what would you even mix this with this is terrible (laughs) i drank moonshine and that was gross yeah i can't i can't drink that (laughs) i don't even know what it is it doesn't even specify the type of alcohol so i'm pretty sure it's just like gasoline they've flavored like bananas and they're like drink this like no i don't want to oh goodness so how have you been Uh, i'm i'm here (laughs) (laughs) i'm exhausted and this week's gonna be interesting because at the new place the general manager is brand new and well, he's brand new at this place. Yeah. Um, but he's having to restart everything. So he's like doing a total overhaul. Oh. And he wants to get me trained as quickly as possible because during training, I'm not making tips. And so the quicker I get trained, the quicker I start making more money. So yeah. he's got me working all day shifts. Just to quickly get us trained as fast as possible. So I'm about to be very tired this week. <laughs> oh no. But yay, new job? Yes, I'm very excited. Now you just have asshole customers wanting their food instead of asshole customers that can't figure out how to use a gas pump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, man. I had one last night that was pretty, like, funny. He came in and he's like, ma'am, the pump, the pump. He couldn't speak English very well. So I was, like, trying to, like, figure out how I can, like, explain to him how to do it. Yeah. So I grabbed the scanner and I was like, okay. As if that's the pump. And he's, like, nodding. It's like, you pick it up, lift black piece. He's like. That it sits, yes, yes, he lift the black piece. said about three times. And he, like, he still looked, like, the look he gave me was, like, that he was confused. But he walks out there. All of a sudden, I see him almost take the nozzle out of his car. 
but he turned to the pump and he lifted the black piece and he put it back in his car. And all of a sudden I saw the numbers go down like that the gas was working. Yeah. And I look outside and I see him just crack up laughing. <laughs> Head thrown back, just dying <laughs> laughing at the pump. And I'm like... It's like, oh, look, he figured it out. <laughs> uh, I love a person that can laugh and stuff like that, though. Yeah. That's the best. Alrighty. All right. Do you want to go first? Sure. There's a lot that I left out because it could have gone into, like, all these extra things that he got in trouble for. But I tried to stay strictly to the case of Chelsea Brooke, so... This is the murder of Chelsea Brook. On October 25th to the 26th, 2014, Chelsea Ellen Brook attended a massive outdoor Halloween party that was held in Frenchtown Township at Post and Williams Roads, wearing a poison ivy costume. Good choice. Up to 1,000 people attended this function. Family members became concerned when Chelsea did not come home from the party, and after two days, a massive search began. Tents were erected, and hundreds of searchers became involved in the search, in which police were coordinating. Jennifer Niswender, the best friend of Cassie Brooke, Chelsea's older sister, was among those at the party. Jennifer's twin sister, Julia, was killed in 2012 near Eastern Michigan University, and the murderer was never caught. Jennifer noticed the coincidence between the families and wondered, how does this happen? On February 18, 2015... At the closed Monroe Bank and Trust in Newport Branch, which had been converted into a fine Chelsea headquarters, family and friends continued to ship an estimated 1 million flyers worldwide, and the reward had gone up to $30,000. Wow. On April 5th, 2015, the first big public break in the case happened when Chelsea's poison ivy costume was discovered at an abandoned industrial site in Flat Rock. Oh, that's bad news. Yeah. On April 24, 2015, human remains were recovered from a shallow grave at a rural house construction site are believed to be those of Chelsea Brooke. The next day, Monroe County Sheriff Dale Malone confirmed that the remains did in fact belong, belong to Chelsea. On July 22nd in 2016, 21 months after Chelsea's disappearance, Sheriff's detectives arrest 27-year-old Daniel Allen Clay after DNA collected from Daniel during a robbery of a backpack had linked him to the Poison Ivy costume. A robbery of a backpack? Yeah. What a weird fucking thing. (laughs) Yeah. There wasn't much that I could find on, like, of the case, like, play-by-play and everything that was going down, um, except for, like, random articles so I kind of had to, like, piece everything together from the multiple articles. Yeah. And that's he was a weird guy. Daniel Clay told police investigators that he and Brooke had been having consensual sex in his car following the party. And that she'd asked him to choke her, in which he did for 20 to 30 seconds. He claimed that she st- had stopped breathing and that he had tried to uh, CPR, but said that he could not revive her. He said that he freaked out and did not call the police and instead drove around for 30 to 45 minutes before he drove to some train tracks 10 miles away from the party's location where he carried the body from the car into a wooded area until he had become tired 
and hid it under some tree branches. After which, he moved the body further into the woods before leaving it hidden under more tree branches. It just doesn't make sense. No. That said, during a, pre- uh, a preliminary court hearing for Clay, a medical examiner testifies that an autopsy revealed that she had been beaten to death with a blunt object. Yeah, a little bit different so than uh, yeah. Yeah, an accidental choking. Right. Yeah. She had suffered multiple fractures of her nose, eye sockets, and jaw. Mm. And she had two chipped teeth. Based on that autopsy and testimony, the second-degree murder charge was up to that of open murder. Clay was subsequently convicted of killing Chelsea Brooke and sentenced to life in prison. Leandra Brooke, Chelsea's mother, told Daniel Clay at the sentencing hearing that she forgives him for killing her daughter. She gave Clay a Bible during the hearing as well. Clay told her, I thank you for that Bible, and I will keep it as long as I am able to. I'm sorry for everything. Although, the judge did not accept Clay's remorse as sincere. The judge stated, I spent 10 days in trial with Mr. Clay, and I listened to countless hours of him, changing his story every time the detectives questioned him or brought up something new. He also said, it's very clear to me, Mr. Clay, that you are a liar, a rapist, and a killer. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly that. Yeah, it's a good call. Good call, judge. Yeah, it's very... Hmm. He kept, like, from what I could gather, he just kept lying at every turn. Yeah. But then he says, oh, but I'm sorry. If you were, you'd tell the truth. Yeah. (laughs) Are you, are you sorry? Because nobody believes that. (laughs) Right. Wow. How shitty. Hmm. Well, mine, I, I was having a real hard time finding, like, a good source because um, I, I had never heard of this before. So the Royal Oak Sniper. I ended up finding actually a book by Anne Rule. No idea it existed. It's called You and Me and Other True Crime Cases. Um, she's also the one that wrote the book about Ted Bundy, um, like The Stranger Beside Me. Mm-hmm. And surprisingly, this case had some crossover with Bundy because the murders were happening at the same time in the same area. So like it kind of starts off in Michigan and then meanders and then goes back to Michigan for a little bit. So it's, it's kind of this weird, like back and forth. It's all over the place. This was just (laughs) the whole thing's insane. So born in 1936, Gary Addison Taylor, that middle name, (laughs) That's a little sus. Like Addison. Is that somebody's last name that became a middle name? It was weird. It's like Addison for a dude. It's kind of strange nowadays. Um, but you, yeah, 1936. Uh, he grew up with his parents and his older brother in Howell, Michigan. His parents owned a menswear store. In 1951, his family moved to St. Petersburg, Florida, where he began his attacks on women. So this is. 15 years old. He's a teenager at this point, uh, starting to attack women. He was known to have hung around bus stops at night waiting for women to get off and then assault them with a hammer. Mm. Yeah, good dude. Uh, in 1954, when Taylor was 18, he bludgeoned an unnamed woman with a wrench. Uh, she survived, though he was acquitted. I'm not sure how. Yeah. 
Uh, that that seems like it'd be pretty cut and dry. Like he he beat her with a wrench and she almost died, but she survived, so he's acquitted. Police at the time suspected he was responsible for 16 to 17 other attacks on women in the St. Petersburg area. So acquit him, let him back out. Yeah, makes sense. I don't know if they just didn't have like solid evidence. But whatever that was, um, after he was acquitted, his family returned to Royal Oak, where they opened a dry goods store, and Gary joined the Navy, where he was discharged after 11 months because he complained of chronic migraine headaches. So when the Navy kicks you out because of headaches, you, yeah. <laughs> Especially at that time. Right. He returned and began assaulting women. So this is move back to Michigan. So after the Navy begins assaulting women again after one month of his return. So my guess is while in the Navy, even for those 11 months, I wouldn't be surprised. And these attacks began by him shooting at random women after dark. He wounded two and all survived. He was called the Phantom Sniper in the local papers, and at least a dozen young women in the Royal Oak area were attacked at night, all with a 22 caliber rifle. In one day, he shot at multiple women at bus stops, because I don't know what that was. (laughs) (laughs) He just had a thing for bus stops, um, as they left their homes, even through windows. And for him being called, like, the Phantom Sniper, or, you know, he didn't actually, like, kill anyone. So either he was a bad aim or he was that good where he just was able to miss everyone. Right. There's one story where he shot at these women at a bus stop, didn't hit them, shot through their coats. So supposedly it was one bullet going through both coats, but missed them. So, yeah, either he was that good where he didn't want to shoot them, but he wanted to scare them. I'm assuming that he's just that bad. (laughs) Eventually, he was caught, and after his arrest, he confessed to the shootings. He told psychiatrists he bought the rifle expressly for the idea of shooting women and said he aimed above the waist because of impulses he couldn't control. Uh, Psychiatrists believe he derived sexual pleasure from the shootings. Taylor claimed he had a compulsion to harm women ever since... I was in the third grade. That was a quote from him. So the third grade. Wanting to start hurting women. That's, I can't even imagine a third grader. He said he had been going to prostitutes since he was 15. And, here's another quote, enjoyed seeing the fear on their faces as he beat and robbed them. <laughs> so this was from that, um, that Anne Roll book. He said he put on a mask to make them trust him. When he talked to detectives about women he saw who were flirty, he said he would smile back. They'd think I might be flirting with them, he said. If only she knew what I was thinking, she'd be scared to death because I might be thinking something like, boy, I'd like to shoot you. Oh, wow. Isn't that fucking creepy? Yeah. And he was supposedly this good-looking guy. One would be flirting and he's thinking these creepy thoughts while smiling back and I just can't. I can't. He said to also have robbed, raped, and or stabbed an unknown number of women during that time. 
including an unnamed woman in Detroit in 1960 who he raped and robbed, but she survived. And I'll, I'll kind of get into that one a little bit later. So after he was caught and arrested for his shooting spree, where he was declared insane and committed to Ionia State Hospital, a psychiatrist named Dr. Abram Tober testified in court that he is unreasonably hostile towards women, and this makes it very possible that he might very well kill a person, and probably a woman, if he were allowed free from the community. He was committed March 28th, 1957, one day before his 21st birthday. So all of this was from the time he was a teenager up until he was in his, you know, almost 21. That's a lot. Yeah. Assaults at bus stops, shooting at women, you know, who knows how many rapes and all that stuff during that time. It's horrifying. Yeah. So three years later, in 1960, he was transferred to Lafayette Clinic in Detroit after showing improvement in treatment. And, it gets worse, was allowed to get passes to attend arc welding classes at a nearby trade school. Oh, wow. <laughs> you can just tell. <laughs> like he was allowed what now? And then, uh, yeah, it, it gets worse. While on a day pass... He talked his way into a Detroit woman's home while posing as an IRS agent, where he raped and robbed her. A year later, while out on another pass, Taylor was apprehended for threatening a rooming house manager and her daughter with an 18-inch machete. Like, where where the fuck did he even get that? <laughs> like, uh. I, I don't understand. His trick to get in was that he would say he wanted to rent a room. So when he would return later, they would let him in, and then that's when he would attack. After he was caught, he was returned to Ioni State Hospital. But after the news broke of that arrest, a 26-year-old Detroit woman called police and identified Taylor as the man who attacked her in her art store and choked her into un- unconsciousness that January. And it just, it just continues to get worse. <laughs> Uh, 1970, Taylor was transferred to the Michigan Center for Forensic Psychiatry in Ypsilanti. In 1972, Taylor was released because under Michigan law at the time, a person acquitted of a crime by reason of insanity cannot be kept indefinitely in a mental institution. He must be periodically certified mentally ill and dangerous to himself or the community. The Psychiatric Center's doctor... Dr. Ames Roby, and I'm naming him specifically because I blame him for everything that happened after this. Right. Diagnosed Taylor's condition as a character disorder and not a treatable mental illness. Uh-uh. Roby did not think Taylor was dangerous as long as he took medication and did not drink. Of course he didn't think he was dangerous. It's right. not men that were being targeted. Right. He was eventually released after being deemed suitable for outpatient treatment and had to check in regularly for his medication. Also, do you think he keeps his appointments? Of course not. (laughs) Maybe for a little bit, but not for very long. Um, After his release, Taylor met and married a woman named Helen, who he lived with in Onsted for about a year. They later moved to Seattle, Washington, and then moved to... A numclaw, Washington. The two later divorced. Nobody is surprised. No. So, 
November 27th, 1973, he abducted and murdered a young 19-year-old woman named Vonnie Stuth. She went missing from her Seattle home. And for reference, Seattle is about 42 miles from Anumclaw. So it's pretty close um, to where he moved to. At around 10.30 that night, while on the phone with her sister, she answered the door where a man from across the street wanted to give them a dog. Weird time at night, by the way. Yeah. And she told him to come back tomorrow when Todd, her husband, is home. She disappeared sometime between 11 p.m. when she was seen by her brother to 1.15 a.m. when her husband returned home from work, um, where he worked the night shift. Her husband knew something was wrong right away because the door was unlocked, Lights and the TV were left on, and her purse was left on the kitchen table uh, with cash still in it, but Vonnie was missing. Police were aware of eight other women who fit the pattern, who had also disappeared that year from the area. That included two women Vonnie knew who went missing on the same summer day from Lake Sammamish. I don't know if you knew who was responsible for those ones. Yeah. Bundy. Yeah. So that's crazy. She knew, personally, two of Bundy's victims who went missing on the same day. And that neighbor she spoke to about the dog, that house across the street was vacant. But a neighbor saw a van parked in the driveway on the night Vonnie disappeared. Neighbors identified that house as belonging to Gary Taylor, who they said did not have a dog. (laughs) But they'd been gone from there for some time. However, Vonnie didn't tell her sister which neighbor it was. And all others on the street denied it was them that came to the door when they were contacted by police. The story goes that Taylor was suspected and arrested because of his move from Seattle to Anumclaw. He sat during the interrogation, but refused to take a polygraph. Police had released him as they had no grounds to hold him. Um, There was no body or evidence tying Taylor to her disappearance. And without an NCIC listing... The investigators had no way to know he was an escaped mental patient because at the time he stopped basically going to treatment in like 1972. So a year later, they still hadn't put him in a computer system to notify everyone that he was technically escaped because he stopped showing up. And this was when kind of computers were new and all that, but still things got dropped. So he was supposed to return a few days later on December 9th. At the time of the interview, he was relaxed and assured the detectives he would return to take a lie detector test. And it wasn't until 1975, after being missing from the system and his appointment since 1973, Taylor was declared an escaped mental patient. (laughs) And it's hard to call you escaped when they just let you out and then don't monitor you or track where you are. By that time, you've just lost them. And it was discovered that after leaving... The interview with police, Taylor left and moved to Houston, Texas, Mm. where more shit happens. Uh, While there, he raped a pregnant 16-year-old girl, possibly murdered a 21-year-old dancer. And I'll kind of get into those. So for the, the dancer, on May 14th, 1975, Susan Jackson disappeared from the Three Thieves Bar where she worked. Four days later, an elderly man on his daily hike found her body wrapped in a blanket in an area 30 miles from downtown Houston. Also, when Taylor moved to Houston, a series of nearly identical rapes started. Of course. Yeah. A tall, good-looking man would ask female realtors to look at a property. 
Once there and alone, he would rape them at gunpoint. In 1975, his final crime was the rape of a pregnant teenage housewife. That was that 16-year-old. Which, young, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> she had an 18-month-old baby. was pregnant again. Oh, wow. Uh, so he forced her to go with him to a motel after he had assaulted her in her home with the baby there. So he forced her and... The, I think the book said something like, let the child come with. So she was assaulted again in the motel he forced her to go to. In the book, it kind of talks about how he seemed tired, like he might have been on drugs and he smelled like marijuana. This is a, according to her report in the book. Yeah, but I'm sorry, weed doesn't make you do that. No. I don't know what she, she said. She smelled it. I don't know if it had anything to do with it or not. But right. either way, he fell asleep after. Oh, um, yeah, and she was could. able to escape. So when the police arrived, he was gone, obviously. Um, however, with the information the motel had, they were able to identify Taylor as the perpetrator. He had registered as Sarge Taylor with a Michigan license plate number. He was arrested a month later. On May 20th, 1975, after police received an anonymous tip that he was working in a Houston machine shop. After Helen, Taylor's ex-wife, heard about his arrest, she informed police in San Diego, California, where she was living, that he had drunkenly told her about um, killing four people. (laughs) So I was like, "Uh, excuse me, Helen, (laughs) why not say anything before? Um, And she... And some of these stories are so, like, back and forth about if she knew or not. Some things I read said she knew. Other things were like, oh, I I wasn't sure. Like, (laughs) if somebody even tells you, I was violent towards another person. You're just like, oh, Gary, you nut. (laughs) That's just Gary. Yeah, Gary was getting a little goofy. I don't believe. She told police she suspected him of others, including Vonnie Stuth. And when she was asked how she didn't realize he was a killer while they were together, she said, I tell you, he's a very cunning person and he acts completely sane. And all the time he probably wants to kill. That's nice coming from your (laughs) ex-wife. So Taylor confessed to the murders. And two days later, on May 22nd, 1975, the same day the Houston Police Department contacted him, the Lanaway County Sheriff's Department began an investigation and found the bodies of two missing Toledo women, Lee Fletcher, 25, and Deborah Henneman, 17, tied up with rope and electrical cords, shot in the head and wrapped in plastic bags, and buried outside the bedroom window of the house Taylor lived in in Onstead, Michigan. Oh, wow. Some of the things I read said they were sex workers, but I I don't see how that was even relevant. <laughs> like, it might be how he got to them, but... Yeah, it's not. That doesn't mean that he should be able to kill them. Correct. Of, <laughs> I, feel, I feel bad for this family that lived in that house because they had recently moved in when a van, <laughs> yeah, when a van of oh, trustees God. from the jail showed up to look for bodies in the yard. Fletcher and Henneman were reported to have left a nightclub with Taylor in 1974 and were never seen again. There was a claim, I think, from him that there were two other bodies on the property, but they were never found. So it's unsure if there actually were 
and they just never found them or if that was yeah likely taylor also gave written confessions of the deaths of vonnie stooth she's mentioned before and susan jackson the go-go dancer in houston whose bodies were found between his you know texas and washington taylor but let's just release him yeah from he's, the mental not, he's not at risk that fucking doctor. No, not at all. <laughs> like, you were so wrong. You were so wrong. Uh, he'll be fine as long as he takes his meds and keeps showing up. Mm. <laughs> Doubtful, but okay. So ta- in those confessions, Taylor confessed to picking up Jackson in the bar, taking her home and suffocating her. Vonnie Sue's body was eventually found clothed uh, by a nearby creek behind Taylor's and Umclaw Washington home. She'd been shot in the back of the head, but like I said, she was fully dressed. So there were some things her family was saying that like maybe he didn't assault her and she tried to get away from him. And that's why he shot her in the back of the head was because she was like running away or getting away or something. When confessing to the murders of Fletcher and Henneman, the bodies that were found at his Michigan home, Taylor claimed he never even knew their names. Additional investigations cleared him of six other Washington state murders that were later linked to Ted Bundy. But between investigations in Texas, Michigan, and California, he is suspected in as many as 20 unsolved homicides. Taylor was convicted on the four counts of murder he confessed to and was sentenced to life imprisonment. Overall, his crimes ranged from before 1954 to May of 1975. His victims ranged from... Four to five murders, likely more. Uh, Twelve plus attempted murders. I'm guessing that's from shooting at women. Right. Two rapes. That's minimum. Two threats of violence. One sexual assault. Also probably minimum. Uh, Most of his victims were unnamed women and girls in the states of Florida. The hammer at the bus stops. And murders in the states of Michigan, Washington, California, and Texas. The strongest case for murder was the Vonnie Stooth case, so he was extradited to Washington, where at 40 years old, he pled guilty to second-degree murder on April 30th, 1976. He was sentenced to a minimum of 90 years in prison and would be eligible for parole at the age of 100 years old in 2036. (laughs) 2036, he'd be eligible for parole. (laughs) Which I don't think he's living to 100, so I think we're good. Right. Vonnie's mother, Lola Lindstad, went on to co-found families and friends of victims of violent crimes and missing persons in order to help other families. When asked how she went on after losing her daughter, Lola said, If we had spent the rest of our lives grieving and mourning for her, I know it would have made her sad. She would have wanted us to go on celebrating Christmas and laughing and living. We will always miss her, but we are living as she would have wished us to. And that's the story of Gary Addison Taylor, the Royal Oak Sniper. This all could have been avoided. <laughs> I know. I know nothing about this. And it was funny as I was researching all this, I was like, oh, I'm just so pissed. <laughs> I'm so pissed that this happened. Yeah. But that happens a lot of times. Well, I'd say more times than not. So much can be avoided. In many of these cases, and people just choose to ignore. Gets acquitted for beating a woman with a wrench. Gets basically told he's criminally insane. 
So then he goes to an institution where he's let out on passes to then assault more women, sent back again, and then let go and then just runs off. And then since it wasn't reported, he was able to run off after being suspected of murder in another state to then go to skip out, go to another state again. The whole thing. Yeah. It was just insane. I couldn't. (laughs) Yeah. It makes me mad. Doesn't it? Gives me a headache. (laughs) I'm just like, oh my gosh. How? So that one wasn't like specifically only Michigan, but still. Right. It kind of skipped all over. Yeah. Oh, What's your something good? I need to come back from that. Um, I'm leaving my terrible job. Today is my last day. Yay! That is my something good. I am thrilled. I'm mad at myself for not telling them that Friday would be my last day. Because then I would have had all weekend to relax and get ready for the busy yeah. upcoming week. But I will live. <laughs> um, mine. We're gonna have another nice day here today, so I'm excited to uh, probably go hang out more outside. I uh, I bought Liam a new kiddie pool yesterday, so we can go play in that. And then I'm doing a, like a seafood boil thing later for dinner. <laughs> so I have that to look forward to. It's like I'm gonna try this out. I'm not Southern by any means, but I'm going to try. You do make really good crab legs. Yeah, I've got shrimp and crawfish and crab legs and corn and potatoes and all the boil seasonings and all that stuff. So I'm going to try it out. Mm, Fun. Okay, well, everyone, have fun out there. Be safe and watch out for the crazies. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. The music titled Teller of the Tales was provided by Kevin McLeod and can be found at incomtech.filmmusic.io.